Hey everybody, and welcome to Views on View. I'm Ben Hong, ViewPress core team member, and today on our panel we have Ari Clark, UI UX engineer at Liquid, and Fiona Apple expert. Hello. And we also have Elizabeth Fine, front-end developer and front-end community builder. Hello. And today our guest is Tracy Halinka. Tracy, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Tracy Halinka. I'm a web application architect with the role of front-end lead for Bloomberg Industry Group. And we just got a rename, and we used to be called Bloomberg BNA. Awesome. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. So I guess to kick things off, I think like we do with a lot of guests, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into Vue and um, kind of what your experience has been with this so far? Uh, yeah, so I had a colleague at work. Um, basically, he saved up some of my, I would say, horrible stack. Basically, we were working with something the equivalent of, I would say, JSP, Java, uh, what they call it, Java server pages. It's not really JSP, but it was JSP-like. And, you know, writing the front end in Java, we just thought was kind of, you know, crazy. So he came up with, and this is kind of crazy. And, you know, whether you do PHP or ASP or any of that stuff, I think, you know, front end really should be done JavaScript, CSS, and HTML. So he actually came up with this idea to switch us over to GraphQL and Vue. And then later we brought Apollo client into it. So that's basically how I got introduced to it. And I loved it. Like from day one, when he introduced it, I loved it. It's so easy to learn. It's like, you know, I've used front-end frameworks before, like um, Angular 1. So I guess if you could call that, you know, it's, they were still figuring it out, right? I mean, it wasn't a really great experience. And I know Angular is much better now. So I just, Vue was just so easy. We went straight to single file components, which just was beautiful because I came from like PHP and it was doing Java before. So my JavaScript skills were kind of rusty. So it allowed me to go into it kind of easily. But I, I just love it. I've never turned back. And every time someone tries to throw me into something else, like anything, I just like fight. <laughs> like right now I'm being thrown in a Ruby and Rails project and I fight tooth and nails because I really, really prefer to be in Vue. The thing about Vue that I really like is, is that there's many ways you can use it. So you can do this full on 100%. Like the way we do it at uh, Bloomberg Industry Group is we have 100% SPA as one app. But then we also have an app where we just bring it in, like you include it, like as a script file, like when you usually start it out, like just as a script file and just to have a few components sprinkled here and there. So like with Vue, there's multiple ways to actually bring it in. You can actually start from scratch or you can kind of slowly bring it into an existing app, which is also another benefit. So we started with 100% SPA um, with server-side rendering, but everyone liked it so much that we started to bring it into other apps, into Rails apps and, you know, and when I got thrown into the Rails project, I was like, oh, no, we're bringing Vue in even more. So, and, you know, they had kind of already started it. But that was another nice thing about Vue. And I have no experience with React, so I don't know if that's the same thing with React. But it just was another benefit of using Vue. It's easy to use, easy to learn, you know, so it's, that's like, you know, it was awesome. Have you found that there's any notable differences between doing single file components or using Vue by including with a script tag, like in terms of developer yeah. experience? Yeah, I find it just easier single file components because I still, even though I came from a heavy PHP background and I'm used to writing the front end in a, a server side scripting language, it's just easier to read it. I like CSS as CSS. I like HTML as HTML and I like JavaScript as JavaScript and I don't like them all mixed up. And so for me as a developer, I find it, I find I do development quicker and I can open up a component and I can quickly understand what's happening. Whereas even today, if I look at like a PHP or a JSP, I kind of like get confused and it's not so easy for me, you know, to figure out what's going on. I agree. I, I love having things the way they were intended to be. <laughs> or at least that's how I feel about it. That that was how they were intended to be. I'm sure some people disagree. It wouldn't be the front end if people didn't. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I just definitely, it's a lot easier. And it's also easier for newer developers too, I think. I agree, yeah. 
Um, Tracy, I'm curious. So you said you were migrating some of your old pages to view SPAs. Is that right? We've got a couple ways of doing this. Um, we've tried a bunch of different things. So there's, I have a colleague that writes a lot of these. Ta- so uh, Bloomberg Industry Group does a lot of, um, we're kind of in the legal space, the news legal space and research space. So we have one colleague that does a lot of these tax calcul- complicated tax calculators. I don't even understand half of what he's doing. But he just brings it in with the, um, just with the include. But that same app that he's doing that in, I'm also, I'm in kind of using in that app too, and I'm bringing news into it. And we're just bringing it in as kind of an, as an SPA. Okay, so I don't know, like micro front end, people have different names for it and what it means, but it's kind of like we're doing sort of a micro front end. So we're, that's a hundred percent SPA. So we're kind of doing it both ways. And we are trying to go to hundred percent like kind of micro front end SPAs or view. And it's not server side running for this app. So I think it probably makes it easier. Have you noticed any performance differences on the, let's say the pages where you are moving towards a view front end versus one so, where you're not? Yeah. So we just had a search got moved to the hundred percent, like the SPA kind of the micro front end. And it is, I think it's twice as fast. It's a huge performance difference. It's wow. Not- I didn't measure it, so I'm not on that team, so I didn't do any of the work. I just know that the end users really find it faster, so, okay. noticeably fast. So, yeah. Cool. But, you know, it was Ruby on Rails, so you have to also realize it was, like, it's server-side, it's different, right? And it was a legacy product. It is a legacy product. So you have to bear that in mind when you're doing. But for us, it definitely worked out. So were you saying that the you are server-side rendering some of the view um, pieces that you're using. Is that right? Yeah. So we have a, a news app that's, uh, we, we call it a standalone. It's just only news. I would say on that app, I do responsive design. So every mm-hmm. app I do, I make sure it works in mobile. So this one particular app, which is the favorite one I like, because it's hundred percent view, it's like 50% mobile usage. So we've done the server-side rendering because of Google, which I think that's still needed. I, I don't know. I actually would like interesting in your feedback if you all think that's still really needed for Google. And also, I think for mobile, it probably still is benefit for mobile. But so that's why we went, made that choice. And we actually made that choice a couple of years ago. So and we're actually in an internal debate. Do we stop doing that or not? So actually, be interested in your feedback. Like, what do you all think about server-side rendering? Do we actually need it? My understanding um, is server-side rendering is good for SEO because then if all of your view code is actually like all the HTML is on the page, Google can crawl that content. Whereas if you're just hooking everything into a div with an ID app, there's not really anything useful in there for Google to crawl. But yeah, what do you all think? Anyone have any other opinions? I have no idea because my view app is internal only. So no I know. Yeah. There's so many things I don't have to worry about that. Like 99% 99% of other developers do. And I'm like, oh God, what happens when I leave this job? <laughs> but at least, yeah, I, I have certainly heard the same that um, in terms of SEO optimization, server-side render is the way to go. Agreed. And also just from a performance benefit too, it's just uh, better to have your initial layout already rendered. And then sure, if you want to do dynamic stuff, you're more than welcome right. to. But I heard, yeah, I've heard good things about static-side rendering too. Yeah, I've heard lately that supposedly, I'm not sure where I found this out, but like 85, Google can like 85% chance that Google's going to be able to do it, read an SPA. But so that's why we've had this discussion. So, yeah. Yeah, I've read that too. It's smarter about waiting to crawl for it now rather than just skipping an empty div. Yeah, because like I'm thinking about this and it's been, yeah, I think a couple of years since I've had this discussion with anyone as well. So the way tech goes things have probably changed at least a little bit. So, man, now I feel like I should uh, read up on that. Yeah, I come with homework assignments, apparently. (laughs) Hey, learning is always welcome here. So I'm wondering how your server-side rendering, are you using Next or is there some other technology that you're using for that? No, Vue has an official plugin. So it's been a while. This was set up. I didn't set this up full disclosure, and my colleague that recommended this set it up. And he set it up when it was like really like a beast to try to set this stuff up before we had the nice few CLI3 that everything just does everything for you. But there's a there's a plugin or um, a package, you know, dependency. Um, it's view SSR or something like that. I think it's part of the official plugins. And so it's a little bit more 
complex for us because we're using GraphQL and Apollo client. And Apollo client with doing server-side rendering causes some more configurations and it's, but it's not as straightforward. I'm sure now it is a DCLI three, but when we set it up, it wasn't as straightforward. It, it definitely was a trial and error. And I was just fortunate I wasn't the one doing the trial and error. I feel the same about things like that. <laughs> <laughs> I am not one of those. Well, and think about it, Webpack, right? This is before Webpack was actually easy to use. So, I mean, you know, kudos. I would that. argue it might not still be, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but you have few CLI three, right? That makes you yeah. have to look at Webpack, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And so I actually had to make some adjustments, like I don't know, a year and a half ago, when I had to try to learn Webpack, and it was just really it gave me a headache. So, oh yeah. Unfortunately, there are people in this world that they love doing that type of work, and I am so grateful that they exist. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, Tracy, as far as your view setup over there, how do you all handle CSS? We used to, and maybe this is because I've been doing this for a while, but we uh, did manual scoping out of CSS. So I know a lot of people would use the, the scoped, uh, the view scoped out of the box scoped, and we didn't do that. We just did manual scoping, partly because I'm really a stickler, so we, I didn't really have a lot of problems with collisions. And we have enough people that had skills enough in CSS that it, it was okay. And, and the smaller projects we started out with. So that worked out fine. But now I'm in these bigger projects and the level of ability, well, the level of knowledge in CSS is varied, right? We have a lot of backend developers that occasionally will do CSS. And they, I mean, you know, backend developers, they're backend developers. They don't really want to mess with CSS. So they kind of, don't necessarily think about it as a like at the bigger project, you know. So I really pushed um, CSS modules, and which is kind of funny because I was sort of hesitant about it. As Ben knows, I'm not the biggest fan of them, although he tells me that people tend to use it incorrectly, which is why I'm not the biggest fan. So and CSS modules in some ways sort of is them like in a way, but. I just decided that we have way too many developers and we're having too many collisions and we just need to do something about it. I just wasted too much time, you know, trying to figure out like, why is your stuff being overridden? Where is it coming from? And it's coming from this other part of the app that you didn't even realize existed. Like, you know, it's a bigger project, right? So I just, so I've really pushed the SS module. So we're integrating into it. I actually will probably never go back to anything else because <laughs> I really, really like it. So I think even for small projects, I use CSS modules now. And I think, so there's a couple of benefits to CSS modules. One is the collision, right? You don't have to worry. So I guess for those who don't know, CSS modules basically is, is I guess it's kind of like job, what, what they call it, JavaScript and styles in JavaScript. I'm not sure how they phrase it. Basically what it does is, and it's easy with Vue, it uses JavaScript to kind of take your styles and kind of a, append a hash to it is basically what it does. There's different ways you can do it, but in the end, it's really appending a hash. So it's like article underscore headline underscore some random hash. It could be five characters. It could be 10, whatever you want. And that random hash, like if that random hash is never going to exist anywhere on your app. So there's no way that any style you've, so you can make that purple and it's only going to be purple on that particular element. That's the other thing about it is that you have, Every element has a style, basically. So, which some people could find like time-consuming. Well, I don't know if time-consuming is a word, but not everybody wants to go through every element that you want to style and actually put a style, put add some kind of class to it. So, like you don't use, you don't style elements. You wouldn't style a p tag. You know, you wouldn't style a link. You don't do that. You have to actually every element, every link that you want to style, you actually have to add a link, a link style to it. Now, it could be the same link style within a component. But in the end, what this does is it just makes it really impossible for this to bleed out anywhere else. That's the gist of it, right? I don't know if I, is that, did I explain that well? Or I, like, do, do you all understand what I'm trying? Okay, so, okay, good. Uh, yeah, it's hard with no visuals, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I actually did a talk like a, a couple, I don't know, like three months ago on CS modules for a VUDC meetup. And yeah, so it was, it was definitely easier with visuals, so. So that's the one thing is, but the thing with Vue, doing it in Vue that I find out is, at least for me, it forces me to write Vue components correctly, right? Like with, with CSS modules, you have to have your styles within the component you want to style. Like you, none of this deep targeting. Like, I don't know, like, so, I, and I'm guilty of this, of being at a, uh, like a parent and targeting the grandchild, right? Well, you shouldn't be doing that, right? 
And I'm completely guilty of that. It's laziness or I don't know, whatever, you know, for whatever reason. However, the problem is when somebody comes behind you and does maintenance and they change that, they can actually change that grandchild and it'll ruin the styles that are in the parent because if they decide to change their class, because you don't really know. Like, there's no like visual quick connection that says, hey, this grandchild has also got styles in this other component. Like you don't know that. So for that, I think it also really forces me to write things properly. Like actually my styles are actually in the component that are supposed to be in. It forces me, you know, start using slots, which I was really bad about. But now I use slots a lot more. You know, like if I have like an, like a, I don't know, a side container. So I do news. So I'll relate this to news. I have a side container that maybe has the um, reporters or something. Maybe every side container has a similar treatment. Well, that should just be slots, right? You know, that the bigger container can just be a container that has slots in it. I think that's a better way to actually write components. So that's one of the things besides the actual not having a CSS collision. So I don't have to spend hours figuring out what's going on. And the other benefit is I don't have to think about names. Like, you know how hard it is sometimes to name your CSS? Well, if every, if the CSS is in one component and it's being hashed, like you don't have, to, you can just call something wrapper. You don't have to have figure out like wrapper article. You don't have to come up with these long, crazy names, right? And that just to me is free. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, like every component that I make has a wrapper class somewhere in it. <laughs> so yeah, it's a really good thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is modules. Wrapper, list style. <laughs> Sometimes right, I like I to do wrapper and container, you know, live on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you using any um, CSS preprocessors like SAS along with it? So I started out a long time ago using SAS, and then a couple years ago, I switched over to PostCSS, which I actually really like. However, with the CSS modules, because I'm actually also, so we have our news app and different platforms, and the news part of these, wherever the platform is, the news part is actually in view. So I just, and we can't all just bring it, not everyone can just have an SPA, like it's slapped into it. So what I did is I have this component library and it's just meant for the news app. So I don't have to worry about reusability. Like I, nobody else is going to touch it. Or if they do, it touch at their peril, right? Use at their peril. And <laughs> because of that, some of these apps, like they use SAS or they're using different things. So as a result, right now, I'm just doing plain old CSS because I'm going to different apps and I just don't know what the conditions are going to be. I mean, I don't always have full control. So the only thing I can count on is auto prefixer and that's it. That's the nail I can count on. So as a result, I count on auto prefixer and I write plain vanilla CSS, which also at some level has also been freeing too. To kind of go back really? to, you know, the roots, right? Like, you know, okay. yeah. So there's one thing. So CSS modules, like it, it's not always going to work for everything, right? And there is one thing that I have um, that I haven't been able to make work. And I've Googled it and like, I haven't really found a lot of posts or any anything on this, but the CSS modules has this thing called composes. And it think of it kind of like at extends in, in the in the SAS world. But it's different from at extends because at extends kind of like takes a class. So you have this class A and you at extends class B. It actually writes all the stuff that's in that class B inside the class A. So it actually changes the class A. Whereas the compose actually just adds another class onto it. So you have, so you're in your, in your, um, like if you look at inspect the code, it'll have a class like, uh, you know, style A and then also a class style B. So it's not really altering that, altering that class A, which is probably a bit better, right? I mean, that takes a, what do they call it? An um, composition. So it's kind of the take in the composition way of doing things. However, there is a catch. I have not been able to make it work with media queries, which is a problem when you do responsive design. <laughs> so that does have a problem. <laughs> honestly, because I everything's so componentized, I really haven't really. The only thing I miss it is for is font, like you know the font height and the width, uh, the font height and the that all is like the same. But that's it. That's the only time I've ever missed it. So I've been willing to, you know. I, it's not really been a problem and no one has complained about it yet. So, but they don't really know exists, so they can't complain about it. So anyway, so that's the only one problem. So that I've had, like for me, it's not a problem, but you know, for others it could be. So maybe this is just me and how I, an effect of how I'm bad at CSS in general. <laughs> but Yeah. I rely super heavily on um, the at extend because 
I don't know. I like having something sort of global and that I can easily bring in. So how do you get around that? Is that mostly because you have the component library to work with? Because I do not because spaghetti. (laughs) how, How do you solve that problem? So it's mostly because with viewing the components, like if I was doing some other framework, I don't know if I would go down this road. But because of the view components and I've been, I somehow, I don't know how this happens, but when everybody wants components written on my team, somehow I'm the one that has to do them. So, <laughs> so as a result, I spent all my days writing components. So I've gotten like, you know, figured out a lot of things of better, better ways to do stuff. And so I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is, and this is separate to view, I have really gotten off global. I don't even want resets anymore. So, you know, you have different resets. The first reset, I think, was Eric Meyer did a reset. That's the first one. And then there's been subsequent ones. And I am really off even resets now. So I don't like globals. I don't like resets. And maybe it's because I work with a variety of people and they have different skill sets and they're so tending to make globals for things that you shouldn't make globals for. And so I just spend all my time overriding it and I just like throw my hands up and say, you know what, I'm done with globals. Again, with what the way I'm doing it, it's worked out. Yeah, the, the only thing I find I really need globals for is just not even style roles, variables for breakpoints. Because that's something that tends to stay the same throughout all the pages right. I work on. But besides that, I mean, it's really surprising. I, I've been working on a um, like a pretty big project in Vue, and our global file is like a few lines long because <laughs> everything is so componentized. But one of the things that I struggle with, which I wonder what your insight would be on this, is um, when to modularize something or when to componentize something. I feel like a lot of times, you know, you can see something like, oh, I've repeated this here and here. You know, maybe I should make this a, a view component or maybe I should make this a CSS module. But then, I don't know, maybe it's two times not enough times to, to componentize a piece of, like an element of a page or a piece of functionality. What do you think? So I have a colleague, and this is more from like the like programming, like Java side, object-oriented side. His role is like when you hit the third time, you, you, you actually want to, you know, make it more dry. <laughs> But to me, it also depends, and we actually have arguments back and forth. If the component has a heavy CSS aspect to it, and I'm trying to control, instead of using globals, I will go ahead and make it a component. That's for me how I do it. So I'm actually more quicker if I have to do it the second time around, particularly if it's heavy CSS, I will go ahead and make a component. Mm -hmm. But I also will make components if I'm trying to control forcing certain props. Right. So if I'm trying to force them to do certain things and the pro just it makes sense to have like uh, so like an option, I, I made an option. You know how designers always want to like style options or whatever. So I have, a, I have an option component and I actually even went in and it's got a lot of children to it because I'm controlling like I have this object that fed into it and I want to control what how that object feeds down. I don't know if I'm explaining this well, but. So I'm also using it to control like the data that's being put in. So like when a developer uses it, if they don't do it the way that I want, they're going to get JavaScript errors, right? That's, yeah. I may be guilty of now over-componentizing everything. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's not a thing. You can, <laughs> you can never have too many. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no. So given the fact that you are apparently pretty heavily utilizing um, component library, are there any tools that you use to help support the use of that in a um, across the team? So, what do you mean by tool development or like yeah, like uh, ways uh, for other developers to sort of easily figure out what components are available? Yeah. So, when I went to the first View conference um, and in New Orleans, that was awesome. By that time, I think we'd been using View for about a year, but there was a talk on storybooks, right? And so I thought, oh, that looks interesting. So I came back, I set it up, and then I realized there's this thing called StoryShot, which StoryShot is visual. I don't know if you've all heard of StoryShot. Okay, it's visual regression testing. It's, it's actually really interesting. It's an add, or add-on or a plug-in for Storybook. And you all know what Storybook is. It's basically a, a component library. I, I, I don't, it's basically, it just allows you to, visually, to visualize the components, right? Airbnb has one. I think it's really well known. And I think Spotify has it. It actually comes from the React community, right? I think Storybook actually started the React community. So anyway, so it's a great way to visualize your component. And then the Storybook 
is it just um, a story shot is visual regression testing. So what it does, it literally just takes an image of the, the component. It's hooked into Jest, so you just run your regular unit test. It'll go and it'll take another image of the storage of the of the component, and it'll do a diff. So it's basically checking your CSS, right? So there's these two things. So I have that to ensure that if somebody needs to edit the component library, they're not going to mess up with other stuff, and they're they can actually see what their differences are, so they understand what they're doing. But it also allows, but the whole storybook allows people to go, we can go it, go look at it and see what the components are and how it works. And, you know, there's a function to add notes, but I try not to do that. I try to make my code obvious. So, <laughs> so that's one thing. And um, yeah, I think that's the main thing we use is the storybook. Now you said that you found out about that after you guys have been using a uh, view for about a year. Yes. Do you find it difficult to sort of retroactively add that in? I'm asking because I'm totally thinking about doing it. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's not, it's not difficult at all. Like, so especially if you've done unit testing, it's really not that difficult at all. Like, so if you've done unit testing where you've actually had to mock your data, which we had at that point, so we just literally like just copied and pasted a lot of the data mocking over, right? And there's probably a better way to do it, but that's how I did it. But so it, it's actually, I don't really find it difficult at all because what it does is it basically has something called stories and it's completely separate of your components. And all you do is it's like you're writing a view component. You just include the component. You just say, here's the data mock. And here you call the component. And that's it. It's, it's, it's actually really easy. And you just can say, okay, take your, what are the components that are the most important to see? And just start with them, right? You don't have to do it all in one, one shot. So, because I don't, like, if you have 50 components, that might be painful. <laughs> but, you know, what's the most important? What gets changed the most? Actually, what I would go for, what gets changed the most? And also, I would just throw story shot in there for the heck of it to, you know, I mean, yeah, if you're going to do it, do it right. <laughs> well, yeah. And plus, like I said, I work with a lot of people that aren't as good in CSS. So, like, you know, so I, <laughs> well, and there, I have done some serious blunders that, you know, that it saved me. I uh, recently started uh, refactoring a lot of our CSS to move away from float based layouts. <clears throat> wrong f layout wrong f layout oh yeah um and yeah there were a few things that originally you know like as i'm working with it looked totally fine and then somehow later really was not fine at all and yeah i feel like uh story shop probably would have saved me from myself a little bit on that one Yeah, actually, I use it a lot because we refactor a lot. Um, oh, so we have really uh, like a really high level of testing, unit testing, end-to-end testing, and story shot, the visual regression. So we can do a lot of refactoring, and sometimes I, you know, get a little too ambitious, and <laughs> so it's you know, it's really helped a lot. I never get too ambitious with refactors. <sighs> That's so weird. <laughs> Just kidding. I do all the time, and then I'm like, oh god, what have I done? <laughs> Thank goodness for Git. <laughs> so speaking of testing, what do you uh, what do you all use for unit and end-to-end testing? So for unit testing, we use Jeff. Kind of that was sort of the community standard when we started. Um, I know that, I think Karma people, I know there's other ones out there, but we pretty much use Jeff. Also, ViewUtils. Yeah, Vue, uh, who, I forget who, who created it, but that thing is awesome. Also, um, we do Cucumber and like WebDriver.io, which is not as common to use, but it, it works really well with Cucumber. And Cucumber is that behavioral driven testing. So like if you if you do Agile and you have to do that, when I, I, I don't even forget how it works. Like, I don't know, Ben, maybe you remember the, <laughs> how it's written. Like when, as a end user, you know, that, that whole system. So Cucumber yeah, works like that. No, yeah, it's, I think if I remember correctly, it was supposed to be like testing written in plain language that you yeah. then like, I don't know, it was, it was, it was popular, I think, in the Ruby community, I think. Yeah. yeah. So recently, so, I heard that there is a sort of JavaScript port of it called Pickle.js. <laughs> I haven't, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Cucumber Pickle. Of course, of course it's Pickle. Yeah, I know, no, I thought that was super cute when I, when I saw that. I haven't played with it, but yeah, I guess it's actually even using the Cucumber engine behind it, but sort of adapted for JavaScript. So if oh, anyone tries that out, let me know. <laughs> oh, okay, we may be trying that out tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, but the thing about the the whole cucumber and that behavioral driven testing and the it's just like Ben said, plain language testing, like the product owner can look at it and, and know what we're testing, right? And and say, Oh, hey, you missed this or so that's the the reason we do it. But I actually really like it. I was re- I was so resistant when we, we were going down this road and uh, I really, really like it. So So what made you resistant? I was just like, man, because it's cucumber and the web driver. It's not it's mm-hmm. cucumber plus something else. But I was like, man, I've already got like, you know, chest and the utils and now I've got storage mm-hmm. stuff and I already got indent testing and now you say I have to do it in cucumber? <laughs> what? I've never heard of that type of testing before, but that sounds pretty awesome because it forces everybody to make sure that the the full definition of the story is there, especially if you have product people that are looking at your tests and saying, yep, this actually does do what it's supposed to be instead of relying on communication from them to you, from you to the QA, and then handing it back and being like, yeah, you know, hopefully this is what you wanted. It's like a real verification process and make sure that those requirements are kind of like there from the outset a little bit more. So that sounds pretty cool. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. We use um, Alassian tool. So we actually have the cucumber tester actually written in Jira ticket. So is that right? Yeah, you associate the Jira ticket so people can see what the test is. Like the pro- product owner can actually write these tests. That's so cool. Yeah. So yeah, and it's, and it's just really it's a really good way to keep everybody in the development loop from product owner to developer and then back. So not only that, it forces the developers to read the real world language of what. Because yeah. I, I, I sometimes I get really trapped in my developer head and I forget that Ooh. it's actually for like somebody's going to use this thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. And a lot of times I'll write my own stories too. And I'll write, I'll write it in development language, like import blah, 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 you know, and it's like, <laughs> no one understands what that means. The product <laughs> owner can look at that and, and know what I'm even doing. So <laughs> Yeah, a lot of times, like, I'll go back after I finish the ticket and add, uh, you know, (laughs) actual stuff that the QA team might understand. (laughs) Because usually, like, I don't even follow the description. It just has a title that I'm like, oh, they're going to have no idea what they're supposed to be testing for. I should should do that. Yeah. No, that's cool. That reminds me. I need to be better about writing my stories. Right. It's a a hard skill. At least I think it is. Yeah, I was just thinking of the same thing. I'm like the one not to write stories because I do a lousy job at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I write the description, like the title of it, and that's it. I'm done. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I agree. <laughs> Tracy, you're talking about CSS modules and how you can write your um, your CSS sort of rules in line in your view component, for example, right? You know, you have a style object where you import your style sheet, and then in your component, you'll write styles.wrapper or whatever your class name is, right? So how is that sort of different or are there any advantages and disadvantages to using that method of scope styles versus using views built-in scope styles like in a style block under the component? There are a couple issues. I guess it depends on the project and what you're trying to accomplish. So if you're just trying to to solve the CSS problem and and not have it help you write better components, then there are a couple cases where the scope style will bleed through. The parent style can bleed through to the child. So like if you have a scope style, the parent has like wrapper. And for some reason in the child, you call it wrapper, that will bleed through. I mean, none of it's hundred percent, right? But I just, for whatever reason, we just did not start out that way. So, so like if you already have an existing project that way, I wouldn't actually try to like 
change it or anything, but kind of like if you're starting something new or you don't have any kind of like we're, we're starting, we're bringing, we're bringing you into stuff, into, you know, rails and stuff. Right. One of the benefits is not that we've used it, but the one of the reasons I thought it's better to do CSS modules over the scope styles is that CSS modules is more generic. You could actually use CSS modules inside Ruby on Rails. There is actually a gem that you can do it. And so it's also, it's used in React. I just thought it was more generic. It's not view specific. And I thought that was better for us to go and not a view specific route. That's kind of the big benefit that I thought. That makes sense. Actually, I have a question, a view specific question with CSS modules, just because I haven't figured out if this is possible and maybe you have. Have you figured out how to successfully use CSS modules with um, object syntax for class bindings? <laughs> because I can't figure it out. Because, because of the, the style dot object uh, syntax and the fact that the object syntax for um, class binding in view, the property name is the class or yeah, the property key is uh, the class name. And obviously style dot whatever is not a valid key. So I end up just doing ternary statements where the second where, you know, if it's false, it's just an empty string, <laughs> which feels wrong. No, I think I've actually done it the way you do. Yeah, right. Because yeah, like I don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a better way to do that. So I mean, that's the one thing. CSS modules is kind of like newer for Vue, right? So yeah. you have to like bear that in mind. But we are, bear, but we all we are using it in production, so it, it's working. You know. So okay, well, I'm but glad it's a better way to do it. Uh, yeah, I'm glad about the only one who hasn't figured out a better way. <laughs> if anyone else. Uh, if Ben, maybe you have some ideas, please let me know. <laughs> or if any viewer, I'm like seriously trying to like go the, the the developer figuring it out. <laughs> I've only been actually doing uh, CSS modules. I think I started right before the the view conference, so it hasn't really been the view conference this year. So it really hasn't been that long. So you know how it is when you're actually trying to build something. You 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 know you find like I don't have time to figure the deal again <laughs> and find. It. I, I, going to work and I'll, and I'll make a little to-do note and I'll come back later and find a better way. So yeah, and then half the time I never come back, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but I'm going to pretend, right? Yeah, no. And like, at least I'm like, I had the note in there. My intentions were good. I meant to come back to this. Uh, I actually think I got a code comment on that one too. <laughs> like a code review comment on that. <laughs> Yeah, Ari, I think it's a Chris question because I, I think you're told, like, that's, yeah, that, I never thought about that. That is, yeah, that's tricky. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, you know, I was like, you know, there's got to be a better way than these awful ternary statements with an empty string for, <laughs> for the false. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they're all over my code base. But then, like, yeah, then I tried to do it with the object syntax and I was like, nope, never mind. Does not work. <laughs> so I just have ugly code, but it works. <laughs> yeah, but you know, most of us have ugly code, right? So <laughs> every once in a while, I have really pretty code, but yeah. only every once in a while. <laughs> That's in a real world when you don't have a deadline. And yeah, people exactly. are. Yeah, you know, we got product owners like, when are you going to be done? So yeah, as long as you make it work, that's what counts. Yeah. So I guess I wanted to ask you, Trisha. You mentioned earlier that uh, in your stack, you're actually using uh, GraphQL and Apollo. Whereas as you're aware, most people are on a REST API and Vuex. So can you speak a little bit to how you all arrived at that decision? So this is back when we kind of, we were using JSP and we had to, we were splitting off and we really didn't have time to do it because the REST API, I mean, it works for a lot of things, but it also takes some time to develop. And I, I don't know, I personally find them somewhat frustrating. Sometimes I feel like I have to call like six different endpoints to hit, to get what I need for the page I'm trying to paint. So with GraphQL, we thought that it would just uh, be a quicker way, quicker way to do it. I mean, it just, it just seemed like it would be a faster way for us to develop some kind of endpoint. And we also liked the idea that it was just graphed and, you know, we pretty much just kind of like call what we need. Like we don't, yeah, if we, we get one endpoint and we just kind of tell it this is what we need and we don't have to mess with all these different endpoints and put them all together. And it just like, it seemed easier. I think the main reason that we went that way, and I'm not the one that made this choice, but that it was just going to be a quicker development path for us to do it this way. Um, also, 
we're this backend that we made the the API for is actually in Java. So we actually did something that's not pretty common, and we actually have our GraphQL in Java. So we actually have a GraphQL Java servlet, they call it, yeah. So which is not particularly common. I think most people will do it in JavaScript. So that's kind of that so, was kind of that was interesting. <laughs> was this built on top of like an existing REST API, or just yeah, totally was, brand new? Totally brand new. It was basically a monolith. It was like the front and the back and all rolled together. That's why it's like the JSP. And so everything just talked directly to the database or, you know, not directly to the database, but, you know, especially the Java side, Java server side of things. It was pretty much all rolled in together. But we wanted to split it off completely, split the front end off completely, put it in JavaScript, have a complete house somewhere else. Everything like before lived together in the same server and everything. And so we wanted to house it, you know, somewhere else completely. So that's just kind of the path we went down to. I, I think it turned out to be the right choice. I mean, I've been really happy with it um, as a because I'm not really a backend developer, but I can really understand the graph, uh, the graph system and the GraphQL and the graph language, graph, I forget the graph tag or whatever they call it. Uh, I just find it really easy to understand. So for me, it's been great. Whereas REST API, I mean, REST APIs are kind of, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's not that hard to understand. I just find using the GraphQL easier. And we also use a Apollo Client, which that's a big thing, right? That kind of is the kind of like the communicator between GraphQL and your front end, really. It's kind of made me a way to think about it. I don't know, Ben, you may have a better way to explain it because you know what we're talking about because I think you used to use it, right? Actually, I have not used Apollo and I was just about to ask you, like, I mean, as someone who uses Apollo, if, if you use Vuex and like the difference in experience as far as like, you know, do you have to set actions that are then committing mutations and, you know. Right. So when we first started, we actually used Vuex and we used to call it a colleague of mine's name, Ron, and we used to call him Client Ron because he's the one that had to write all the code <laughs> to make everything work. And he was like, I'm done with this. And he found Apollo client and we started using that. And basically, you almost don't really need UX if you use Apollo client. It kind of really takes that over for you. And, and the bonus is like, you don't really have to write the code. It does it all for you, right? It just it manages everything. It manages caching. It manages all the mutations. It just manages everything for you. So you don't have to do anything. So like that's a bonus, right? So it, it updates queries. It manages all the caching. Yeah, it just manages pretty much everything for you. So. There are a couple cases where you may need to have state, like you use Vuex, or maybe you roll your own because you don't need something with that big of a footprint. But we had we took our Vuex file; it was really gigantic, and now I think we're down to like five things in it now. I swear we must have had like hundred. It felt like it was a hundred in there. I don't know what it was, but so we're down to like five things in there. And so now we're thinking, okay, well we don't really need Vuex now, right? So we only got five things; it's kind of a big, big footprint. So we need to like, do we just roll our own? Like we're in that conversation now. What do we do? Very cool. So for those who don't know, Tracy is actually a fellow co-organizer of UDC and um, is a really big part of why we're able to keep running these monthly meetups. So I want to share some of your thoughts as far as like community building and your experience with not only our meetup group, but like, you know, your experience with others as well. I guess, um, you know, I've, I've done some, gone to some other meetups, but I tend to focus most of my energy on our view meetup because as you know, it, it does take some energy. So we basically, we have monthly meetings. Every once in a while, we'll have a couple of months, but we just hit like, what's our number now? How many members we have, like 750 or something, Ben? Yeah, we're getting to eight. We're getting close to 800, which is pretty nice because it's all organic growth now. Like Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been really nice. One of the things I really want to focus on now is having more women participate. So when we started, I think, God, I probably was the only woman that I've showed up in the beginning, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, that might be accurate. Yeah, and then you know, slowly more and more women are coming, and I really uh, want to like focus on getting more women developers to come. I really would love to have more women speak. So right now, besides me, we've only had one other woman speak, and we've been going for like we're getting to like a year and a half or something like that. I think. Really, that long? No, no I think you're right. No, it's closer because it's December. So December. Yeah, you're right. Years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really right. would like to have more women speak. And so that's something I really want to focus on going forward. I'm not sure how to make that happen, but because <laughs> we have problems getting people to speak, period, right? So. Yes. I mean, Elizabeth, I think you can speak to that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, when you're, when, what you're just saying, Tracy, it reminded me of a meetup I used to go to in Melbourne where um, it was an all-women's meetup, like developer meetup. 
a big focus was giving practice talks. And it was a small group. It was probably about eight people, maybe. So it was really not intimidating to like, you know, go up there and give a talk. I never did it, but that's only because I was lazy, not because I was afraid to. Um, but yeah, it, so I wouldn't have been intimidated to go up and do something like that. We had someone every single time because people were in a practice mindset. And I feel like that would be such a good idea. I'm just thinking for my own purposes of generating speakers for Seattle CSS uh, to run a group like that. You know, it could be, you know, everybody welcome because you could either do it all women or, or everybody. But personally, I have problems finding anybody to speak at all. So it'd be awesome to have a group like that where we could brainstorm talk ideas and like generate speakers and get people more comfortable with speaking it um, in like public tech forums because it's just so intimidating for people. Yeah, right. It is. Ben always says, I think uh, that it's a, well, I forget what his exact words are. Basically, it's a friendly audience. Like our view meetups, no one's out to, to get you. They're not out to prove you wrong. It's a pretty friendly audience. So it's actually a good place to start. But you're right. For some people, even speaking in front of 30 people like that is pretty intimidating. So that's an interesting idea. Like in the beginning, I was petrified to speak in front of, like you wouldn't know it now, but <laughs> I was really kind of nervous to speak in front of, but I was just like, okay. I mean, basically, I... I would talk about whatever because I thought, oh my God, I'm never, women are never going to come and talk unless they see another woman doing it. It's basically what I thought. So I was like, I'm petrified, but I'm going to do it anyway. And of course now I, I'm not scared mm-hmm. at all to do it, but I just really wish I could get more women. So maybe that's the way to do it. And I don't know what the resistance is. I don't know if it's because they just are petrified to talk in front of people at all. Or of course it would help if we had more women in our group and you know, that actually came to the meetups, that would help some. But like, I don't know, you know, what the... Yeah, I guess it's just being not one to speak in front of a lot of people. I mean, it is intimidating, mm-hmm. but it is a really friendly audience. So, I'm just going to throw out an anecdote that may or may not even be remotely applicable here. I was talking to a, uh, a rather prominent speaker in the VIEW community, and sh- uh, she and another prominent speaker had gone to a VIEW meetup. And they no longer go to said view meetup because they found that the speakers there were very uh, bro-y, <laughs> for uh, lack of a better term. And they felt that that was not an environment they wanted to be around, despite the fact that they're both very, uh, honestly, they're famous members of the view community. I'm not going to name names because that's rude. <laughs> but but I, like, I, I was like, wow, huh? Because like, I, I have also been to this meetup only one time, but I didn't get that sense, but at the same time, when I went, it was a it was a panel discussion that had an even um, male female ratio. So sometimes I, but I can see how yeah um, how the attitudes of a speaker and not necessarily the community can have that impact. I think that's the important point. If the panel had a mixture, right? Because you know, if you if there's, a, I mean, we know that you know, five men and then, you know, four, four men and one woman, that's a different dynamic. And so they're just by a woman being there, the, it's going to interrupt the bro culture, right? So, so I, I guess that brings it to like, I haven't, and maybe it's because I've been around for a while. And, you know, I started when it was, it was not nice for women to be in tech. So what do you all think about, like, there's, we have women, so where we are, we have women who code, and I think that's international. So, and then of course you have view vixens. And so what do you think about those kind of groups? Do you think it like, what are your thoughts about the women focused groups? Are they, you know, what are their uh, value? What value do they bring? Are there better ways that we can integrate it with other groups? I mean, it's something I think about a lot. Oh, I'm happy to speak to this one because I'm very active in the View Vixens community. <laughs> My first sort of introduction to View Vixens was actually this year when I won a scholarship ticket to View Comp from View Vixens. And that was so life altering for me. <laughs> like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be talking to you right now had that not happened. It like, it just, it was this, it led to this cascade of amazing things for me in terms of like professional growth and even personal growth. I am so grateful for that community. I'm in their Slack every day. So the, there's the, the public channels that are open to everyone, um, regardless of whether or not you identify as a woman or not. But there are also, uh, some private channels <laughs> that, <laughs> that are just women. And it's a very safe space to, to talk about some of the challenges of being a woman in tech. And I find that that is 
cathartic and helpful. And it's, I don't spend a lot of time telling my own stories in there, but being able to help other women and help them process what is often a crazy situation uh, to not use as strong of language as I would like. But <laughs> I think that those, those types of communities are so important because, I mean, we've all had those days where we just want to quit because sometimes it really sucks being a woman in tech. But knowing that you're not alone and that there are so many people that have your back and they're rooting for you, it, it makes it easier to, to get up and go the next day. That definitely seems like a good benefit. And I actually did join the Slack channel, although I haven't used it as much as I probably should. Uh, you know, and, okay, so, and also, I'm like the only woman in my larger group. So it can like... Yeah, I'm the only, I'm the only woman in a technical ro- role in my entire company. So yeah, I sort yeah, of so, I need it. <laughs> yeah. So I could definitely see the benefit because there are days where I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe, believe they can't see what they're doing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Oh man, I just realized, Ben, you are totally outnumbered today. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yes. <laughs> but Ben's a good yeah, one. This is actually. <laughs> um, yes, I love you all too. You're an honorary vixen, as I recall. <laughs> yes, that that is true. What about you, Elizabeth? Any thoughts? You know, I would love to be more involved in the view vixen community. I joined the Slack channel, but I feel like I haven't really broken through yet and gotten into it, but I do enjoy all the little, um, you know, all the little random channels. Like for example, was there's the one called show off where, yes. where people talk yeah. about, you know, they can just say, Oh, Hey, I, you know, did this and it was awesome or whatever. And I think it's great. It's a great little space. And um, I definitely appreciate it being there. Like I said, I remember the the group that I used to go to in Melbourne was such a big help because at that point, I was the only um, woman in the sort of tech area of my pretty small company. And the people that I worked with were awesome. But still, it was like, you know, it was great to see other developers and female developers and then look at them and be like, oh, those people are developers too, like me. Because before, especially a new female developer working with all guys, it's easy to be like, well, I'm not a developer because they're all developers. And they're all different from me, kind of. It, like, enhances the imposter syndrome a little bit. So that's one reason why I think it's it's really great to have groups like that um, where you can just connect with other, you know, gals in tech. So, yeah. I do think that the VUE community is probably a bit more open towards women developers. So I came from a PHP background, and I wouldn't say that that's the most open for women developers. I mean, there's been a definite change in the last couple of years. I mean, so I started like, um, yeah, like what? I started like 20 years ago. So it's a huge difference, right? But even in a couple of years, I've noticed a huge difference. But I mean, there's definitely work that needs to be done. And I always like to say, it's not just the work for the women. The men need to do the work too. And that's like really important. And that's something I really like to to figure out how to, to focus on better is like, it's also, I mean, so like Ben's a great ally and we need more men like him, right? And sometimes it's men not even realizing like, like the way they're projecting. So, you know, I, I want to give them some slack because it's just, they're not educated. Right. So like, how can you abuse really helped a lot of that. And I, I, one thing I really liked about the view conferences is that, that it's a pretty good mix of women and men. The best thing I liked about it is they had a woman's t-shirt. That was so awesome, which seems crazy. Right. But I've gone to so <laughs> many, I, see, but I've gone to so many conferences. It's all this male, this man t-shirt. Like there's no such thing as a woman developer. It's crazy. I, I have a really funny story about that actually. So I prefer the fit of men's shirts and they literally did not want to give me the shirt I had ordered because I was a woman asking for a men's shirt. And I was like, what? <laughs> like the irony? <laughs> <laughs> they're like are you sure that's what you ordered I'm like yes I know what I would order thank you but yeah but it was nice to have the option at least right because usually we don't get the option right yeah but yeah no I I think that especially having seen some some of the uh Twitter drama lately regarding some other frameworks yeah <clears throat> I am so- <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna leave it at that um, Interesting, because I don't really, I've ignored Twitter now because of probably the type of stuff you're talking about. So I don't even know like what you're talking about. So Yeah, you need to get me on this Twitter drama. I'm, I'm so, <laughs> you need to send me this stuff. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, is it angular? Is it react? So, this will be off uh, offline the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say whatever framework you think it is is probably that one. And yeah, just seeing seeing their drama and oh my god, their dirty laundry just aired all over Twitter. I'm like, man, I'm so grateful that I'm in the view community because yeah, I I absolutely feel that we are a very inclusive community, and I think not just by chance. I think it's been a conscious effort on the part of so many of the community leaders. And I'm grateful for that. I think it really does help that some of the core developers are women. That really kind of... And I think that 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 is very intentional. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I have always gotten the sense that uh, there's a a mindfulness to the inclusivity in the view community. Not just a, oh, there's a woman. Cool. Glad she's here. No, like it's a, how do we get more diversity in to the view community like it's an active effort so tracy where can people find you on the internet so i'm on github i have twitter although i pretty much try to ignore twitter because i think it's like not probably the best place to spend my time so i have uh, i have github repo tracy alenka um that's probably the best place to find me and of course view i do view meetups so if you're around the dc area find me in person so yeah awesome When I first started taking computer science classes in college, I thought programming was just a joke. In fact, I changed my major over to engineering and started doing computer engineering and chip design. Then I found Ruby and I fell in love. I love Ruby. It was my first real programming language where I dove deep and really learned how to make software that makes a difference for other people. Since then, and the way that we got started with devchat.tv, we started a show called Ruby Rogues. It's currently in the 400s of episodes. We've talked to hundreds of people in the Ruby community about the Ruby community, about the Ruby programming language, about Rails, and about what makes good programming. So if you're interested in Ruby Rogues, or you just want to hear a long series of experienced programmers talking about real problems, then go check out rubyrogues.com. Let's do picks. Uh, let's say, Elizabeth, would you like to go first? Yes. My pick is John Mayer's new song called Carry Me Away, which I'm very excited about because I'm going to go to his concert this weekend for two nights in a row. So I'm just stoked. I love John Mayer and I love his new song. I guess I'll have to check it out. <laughs> I know. I'm the, old, I'm the biggest John Mayer fan in any room that I'm ever in. So <laughs> That's exciting. Yes. And that is my only pick for today. <laughs> All right, Ari, what do you got for us? I have a game. It's an oldie, but it's a goodie. So uh, as some of you may remember, 20 years ago on uh, September 9th, the Dreamcast was first released in North America. (laughs) And so this is two days after that, because this will be released long after this, so it won't seem as relevant, my pick. But at the time, this is super relevant. (laughs) Uh, So I recently replayed my favorite game on Dreamcast, which was Shenmue which you can actually now play on Xbox and I think maybe some other platforms, but definitely Xbox. And I have to say, I was really worried that the game had not aged well, considering, yes, it's a 20-year-old game. And when you think about that, that's that's a long time. The audio was not great, but uh, the gameplay itself, I really felt aged well. I really enjoyed replaying it. I uh, still need to play the second one. I haven't played Shenmue 2, but one of these days. And so I guess what I'd do... It might be a pick, depending on how well that goes. <laughs> so I pick a Shenmue, and additionally, just playing games from your childhood that you loved. It's it's a good bit of nostalgia, and that's it. Awesome. Tracy, what picks do you have for us this week? So I used to play a lot of video games and computer games, but I kind of lost the whole weekends and weeks because of them. <laughs> so I've tried to sort of kind of gave them up. But now apparently I'm sort of becoming addicted to uh, cop shows and foreign foreign shows. So I recently just like binged on this British show called No Offense. And it's like the Brits make some of the best like police shows out there. So I started watching that like eight, eight episodes. It was really good. And there's another one that actually runs on Netflix and it's called, I get into these period pieces, like they're like, you know, women in the 1930s. And there's this one called Cable Girls and it's like a Spanish show. And it had like four seasons, but I watched like, I just watched all four seasons. And it's actually, it's actually really interesting, but I just try to like do something sort of like, you know, not work related every so often. Yeah. So, so those are my picks. Awesome. 
I guess I'm last today. Uh, so three picks for you this week. My music pick for this week is a song called Resistor by, I think it's Asuka. So if, you're, if you like, like Japanese like rock, pop, and sort of like the shonen anime intro songs, I think this is one from Sword Art Online, um, Alicia Zization. So anyways, that's a great one um, if you're looking for new uh, J-pop rock music. For something to read, uh, The Truth of Fact or The Truth of Feeling by Ted Chang sort of talks about, explores a world where everyone has these, like, basically think of them as contacts that they, like, record their whole lives at all times. And then at any time, you can be like, like, show me the time where I, had a, I was on a podcast with Ari and Elizabeth and Tracy, and it would actually show me, like, the video from, like, that time. And it explores, like, the ideas behind memory and what actually happened and the, the ramifications of what if we could at any time bring up videos from, you know, in, in discussions, because it's no longer like, I remember versus you remember. It's like, let's bring up the video. And it's a, a really interesting, like, thought experiment as to what, how that might impact human relationships. And finally, I got to pick a game-related thing, too. And for those who haven't seen it, the Final Fantasy VII remake, uh, the trailer came out and um, the graphics are looking pretty amazing. So pretty excited for that to come out. And so I guess that's it. Anyone have any final thoughts? Really glad to have you here, right. Tracy. It was, it was awesome. Yeah, it was such a great chat. <laughs> oh, thank you. And that's it for this episode of Views on View. Thank you for joining us. And until next week, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.